This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Adrian Nestor, who is a research scientist at the University of Toronto at Scarsborough. Uh, he studies EEG and face perception. He got his PhD at Brown University and did his postdoc uh, with Marlene Behrman at Carnegie Mellon University. We are happy to have Adrian on. He's going to tell us a little bit about some of his research in face recognition and EEG, which kind of relates to our interest in brain-computer interfaces. So uh, welcome to the show, Adrian. Hi, Ralph, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be able to join you guys. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being on the show. Great. So maybe we can start things off by just giving you a chance to talk about some of your recent research and the things that you're excited about, Adrian. Yes, you covered some of the background, which is um, relevant for the things that I do now. I've been doing um, for a long time um, research into face recognition, psychological aspects, um, neural aspects, computer vision aspects um, related to face recognition. Um, from a neuroimaging perspective, I've been trying to develop novel methods for the um, analysis of fMRI and um, EEG data. And um, at some point, I decided to pin these two methods against each other and see how they can illuminate some core questions into how we, uh, we represent faces, how we identify faces, how we represent that information, and what sort of practical applications we can uh, base on that um, research and on those insights. So you started out with doing fMRI analysis, and this can give you certainly a better spatial resolution, so you can see a little bit more where things are going on. But there are obviously some difficulties with using this as a general purpose kind of technique. Uh, yes, that's, uh, that's correct. Um, there's a great deal of interesting research carried out with um, fMRI. That's, that's how I started my training in um, neuroimaging. And I love fMRI. It's, it's a very powerful tool and it's a very useful tool, but at the same time, it has its own um, limitations. It's, for starters, it's, it's, it's a big machine. It's relatively expensive. It's not as widely available as some other neuroimaging um, technologies. From, so from a practical standpoint, it's, it's not necessarily something that you wanna focus on um, exclusively. In contrast, EEG has all of those advantages. It's, it's small, it can be made portable, it's much more widely available, and um, there's, a, there's a lot of hype around um, BCIs that are based in um, novel types of uh, analysis that target um, EEG data in particular. Well, that might be a great place to jump off in terms of talking about BCI. You mentioned the word hype. I think that's an interesting topic uh, that we have been talking about about you know what's what's real what's hype what are the possibilities for using eeg for controlling computers and other interfaces so maybe we can talk a bit about that based on your experience and knowledge it may make sense also before we jump too deeply into that is to give a little background into what we really mean when we say eeg and bci sure yeah well eeg is a um, neuroimaging technology that's been around for a long long time um, before the advent of uh, fmri it's relatively well understood at least in terms of uh, general principles 
it involves placing electrodes on the scalp of somebody's head and then you record correlates of neural um, activity in the form of electrical um, signals. It's got pluses and minuses. Neuroscientists are not particularly so enthusiastic nowadays with um, with EEG because of its um, poor spatial um, resolution. The, the neural generator for an EEG signal can span centimeters as opposed to millimeters in the case of fMRI. And also the skull very much acts like a diffuser, so it scrambles the information to such an extent that it makes it relatively difficult to be able to pinpoint uh, where exactly the neural activity responsible for a given signal or component of the signal it's coming from. If you're interested in finding out exactly where things happen in the brain, then EEG is a, is a very poor choice. But what lacks in spatial resolution, it makes in temporal resolution, because instead of um, settling for um, a temporal resolution of seconds like uh, fMRI, we can collect information uh, millisecond by millisecond resolution. And because of that, one hope is that there's enough information, there's enough structure in the data when you're examining temporal patterns that uh, you might be able to achieve the same feats that fMRI can support using um, spatial information. So I'm not sure whether that's fairly um, um, informative intro to um, EEG, so guys, feel free to... Yeah, no, that that's super helpful, and I think that expresses well the advantages and limitations that EEG has. And I think it's difficult to um, create a good picture of exactly what it is that an EEG setup is actually recording, because like you say, your resolution is on the order of centimeters or so, and in that kind of space, you've got millions and millions, if not billions, of neurons that could be contributing to that signal, and it's harder to know exactly what's going on at a local network level if you're summing over that large area. Yeah, Adrian, maybe you can talk a bit about some of the research that you've done, I I guess specifically related to maybe talking about face recognition. I guess the idea would be that using these neuroimaging techniques, you can try to get a sense of what's the possibility for actually seeing what faces people are looking at based on the the neural data that you're recording from. Is that part of the general approach? Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, So just to link those two lines of uh, discussion, as I mentioned earlier, EEG has been around for a long time. But what's new and exciting about it, it's not necessarily the methodology per se, though there are exciting uh, directions of research in terms of manufacturing, for instance, when it comes to dry electrodes um, and things of that nature. But a part of the excitement is the hype, is the marriage between this technology and um, new uh, machine learning algorithms that allow you to make use of EEG data in ways that have not been uh, possible uh, uh, before. So how is this um, relevant for um, face recognition? Uh, Well, initially, I was particularly interested in identifying what are the neural representations that support uh, face identification, uh, gender recognition, emotion recognition, various aspects of face recognition. And then fMRI was the neuroimaging technology of, of choice just because so much work has been conducted using fMRI when it comes to face perception. So... Several years back, I started to apply a variety of classification, decoding algorithms to um, fMRI data, and we we managed to make some some considerable progress in being able to illuminate not only where information is being processed, 
that's one of the core questions that fMRI can address, but also uh, what type of visual representation supports those kind of processes? How can I distinguish um, Ralph from Joe? What sort of patterns underlie those, um, those persons? We also wondered more recently with uh, whatever we managed to achieve with fMRI in that sense can be, uh, can be done with EEG because, again, it's, um, it's much more affordable, it's much more convenient, and it opens uh, the possibility of uh, practical applications. And as early as, um, well, as rather as late as this year, we managed to um, perform decoding and reconstruction of facial percepts from um, EEG data. And that's something we managed to do in the past with fMRI, but uh, the challenge was to be able to do this uh, with a signal derived from um, EEG equipment. And we've been very pleasantly surprised by, uh, by that feat, uh, which also prompting a comparison between the sort of decoding and the sort of um, results that we can achieve with EEG and fMRI. And we were even more surprised to find that there's a great deal of information within uh, temporal patterns that EEG records. And because of that, we're able to obtain decoding um, levels comparable to those um, that fMRI supports. So to phrase that a bit more generally, whatever uh, fMRI can um, inform on when it comes to face recognition, EEG can do uh, as well, but from a slightly different perspective. So you're extracting a lot more temporal information that you can pull out of it than you would be able to get with a, an fMRI scanner. Uh, that's correct. But to be precise about it, in the past we've also been using spatio-temporal information from um, fMRI. It's just that over there, uh, the primary source of information is spatial, it's not temporal. While with EEG, the opposite happens. You still have spatial information, right? You can, um, at the very least, collect information from multiple electrodes that sample overlapping but distinct uh, cortical areas, presumably. But the core information comes from, uh, from time. So, again, spatio-temporal patterns um, are at the core of this enterprise, both for fMRI and for EEG, but the weight is, is different in terms of where spatial versus temporal information comes into play. How good is fMRI in terms of distinguishing different faces? So, say you're thinking of an eyewitness on a, on a stand. As you're imagining a face, what sort of resolution is possible with EEG and what do you think the state of the art is in terms of how good fMRI is and then maybe how good EEG is or could be? I think it, it might be helpful here also to get a little bit specific in terms of painting the picture for listeners about what these setups actually look like, what participants are seeing, and then what we're recording, and then you know how those things relate to, to the underlying neural activity. So we can kind of paint a picture of, of what this looks like for people. Oh, so if you're in a, if you're a, I was like this, so if you're a subject in the experiment, what exactly are you doing? Yeah, exactly. And then, and then from the researcher perspective, then how are we using that information to, to get at what, what Rolf is asking about, which is, you know, the, the performance of these techniques? Well, the experimental setup is um, relatively standard. It's not particularly difficult. Uh, what we do is expose participants to lots and lots of images, let's say dozens, if not hundreds of images of different individuals. 
And then we collect neuroimaging data, either with the aid of fMRI or EEG. And using that data, we try to decode in a first stage. Uh, in other words, what we attempt to do is to decide whether participants at a given moment are looking at Ralph or they're looking at Joe. So this is something that's been done for a while, and that's where we started. More recently, we moved, uh, we took a step forward, and instead of just decoding the information, so instead of just looking at a pattern and uh, um, being able to decide, oh, this is a pattern corresponding to Ralph, to Joe, or to Adrian, uh, we do something quite a bit more intensive, which is trying to reconstruct, to build an approximation of the percept associated with what um, the uh, participants are seeing. So we take a neural pattern, either fMRI or EEG, and we reconstruct an image of what the participants perceive when they look at the face of Ralph or the face of Joe. So in terms of a task, um, there's not much on that front. Participants just view images. Um, sometimes we do our best to, to make sure that they don't fall asleep so we can give them a, a completely dis different task. Let's say, press a button if you see a female face as opposed to a male face. But that's just, really so, you're, just so you know that they're paying attention, they're doing some kind of task. But you're, you're measuring uh, brain responses to different faces and yes. using that to help reconstruct. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So we, we try to keep those things uh, as simple as possible because they're not essential for, uh, for our goals. What's not particularly ideal from a practical perspective is the fact that we have to collect lots and lots of data. So initially, for fMRI, we collected five hours of data um, to be able to achieve this. More recently, we cut down the number of hours because we can use EEG. And because of the high temporal resolution of EEG, we don't need multiple second trials, which is we can just bombard the participants with uh, with uh, images of faces every couple of every hundred of milliseconds or so so we can collect a lot more data over a shorter period of time but even so these are quite intensive ways of collecting data and they uh, they can induce fatigue i uh, i remember when uh, when i studied that line of research i was uh, i was just finishing up my uh, my phd at brown and i asked one of my friends to go through 10 hours of data collection and um, i lost a very good friend but <laughs> published a paper so you know there's all its pros and cons uh, so so let me make sure that i'm following this correctly so when you say percept how are you distinguishing that from simply you know recognition uh, what, what is the distinction that you're making there, you know, when you say like trying to reconstruct the percept? Well, uh, what I mean by that is the fact that what we are trying to reconstruct, what we're trying to visualize is not necessarily what participants look at, but rather the way in which the visual system processes that. And when you look at a single face with good lighting and in typically good visibility conditions, there's not much of a distinction. What, what you reconstruct can be relatively close to what's in front of them. But in other situations, what the brain does is construct a fiction. And I'm just going to give you one example. Uh, whenever you look at a group of faces at a, at a crowd, um, then the brain often constructs a fiction, an, uh, an artifact. 
that summarizes the average mood and sometimes even the average gender or identity of that group of faces. And why the brain does that? Because it's essential once you're in, a, in, in front of a, of a crowd to figure out whether that's an angry mob or it's a friendly group uh, that you should stick around with. But there was no real understanding from a neural perspective of how the brain does that. So then what we try to do is reconstruct the appearance of that percept. When people look at um, groups of faces without particularly focusing on any single one of them. And the question was, if we try to reconstruct something, what will we reconstruct? Images of Joe and Rolf and Adrian, every single one of them, or rather some kind of weird mixture of all three of them that the brain produces. And uh, yeah, recently we managed to not only ascertain that there's a neural basis for that fiction, but actually to visualize it. We show people um, six faces, and instead of being able to reconstruct the individual identities of, uh, of that ensemble, of that crowd of faces, what we manage to pull out is an average of those images that the participant doesn't actually ever see in any of those uh, you know, experimental sessions. So that's just one way to, to convey the distinction that what we try to reconstruct is not what's in front of you, but rather your percept, your understanding, your um, interpretation of the uh, visual world. So you know, you're recording this brain activity when people are looking at these pictures, and then what you're actually creating is another picture that is your interpretation of that neural data, and that picture is somehow an average of those faces. Is that that's correct. Um, so that's something that there's just example of a fiction of a construct. Um, and I wouldn't call that an illusion because it's not really an illusion. It's just a, a, a useful construct that the brain is um, building to deal in an efficient manner with uh, a wealth of information that needs to be processed efficiently in a very short period of time. Uh, you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't need to look at 10 different faces to, to understand that people are furious with you and you should run away. You need to do that uh, within the scope of several hundred milliseconds. And then that sort of summary representation built on an average can do that for you. And that's precisely what we managed to extract, to visualize from um, neural data. That's really cool. The part that I'm missing here a little bit is, all right, how do we get from you're recording the data, people are looking at faces, you're recording electroencephalography data, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging data, and then your models are outputting images. So what, 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 is, what are the necessary inputs to those models that allow you to actually draw those pictures? In other words, like what is the computation that allows you to to make those pictures. I want to make sure I'm on board on this too. So I still have, I, I have some questions too. And I think about, I'm trying to make sure I understand your question too, Joe. So I think about Jack Gallant's work at Berkeley. I don't know how much this is, the stuff that you've done, Adrian, is similar to that, but Gallant has done some really interesting work on reconstruction of visual images from earlier visual cortex. And the inputs that he use, uses for those are tons and tons of visual images taken from YouTube. So is this sort of the direction that you're going, Joe, is what sort of inputs these are taking? Is it from a large library of 
visual images or uh, no sorry what, what what i was getting at is you, somehow you need to have a mapping that gets you from neural data to images in order to do that you need to seed that in some capacity right so you, the algorithm needs to know what the temporospatial relationships in the data to the to the images that you're developing and just wondering how that comes together. How is that developed algorithmically, I guess? Right. Uh, so I think that the questions are related because um, indeed Jack Gallant has been a huge proponent and um, advocate for this um, um, experimental paradigm, even when people were doubting as to whether this is um, neuroscientifically interesting or just a um, neuroengineering trick. What we currently do compared to the uh, older uh, work by uh, Jack Gallant is that uh, we're not necessarily targeting early visual cortex. And also currently we rely on EEG as opposed to um, fMRI. Uh, also, we try to synthesize visual features um, directly from neural data rather than assuming that um, there's some type of uh, basic primitive vocabulary um, that uh, we have to rely on in order to perform image reconstruction. And that leads me into... So the vocabulary, so vocabulary that you're speaking about would be a library of images and it would be, and, and the distinction you're making, and I'm still trying to make sure I get a hold on this, uh, with Jack Gallant is he's recording from earlier areas of the visual cortex. So something that corresponds spatially to the external world. So things that are right or left on the external world are right or left on the early visual cortex. And then the representations that you're looking at are based on maybe a little more complex transformations of this kind of thing. So less like a, a map of the visual world and something that maybe approaches a little bit more semantics of what's being perceived. Right. Yes, that's correct. Um, so I think Relying on information from the early visual cortex is, is very good, especially at the very beginning. So this entire experimental paradigm has been around for about 10 years now, from 2006, when the first paper was published by Firion and colleagues on um, neural-based image reconstruction of simple alphanumeric characters. Um, so that's how everybody started um, in this direction. And this was the right play, because if you look at early visual cortex, you know exactly what sort of features matter, oriented edges, to, to simplify things a bit. But if you're trying to reconstruct things that are a lot more complex, and also if you're trying to reconstruct things from memory, not just perception, then you, you need to start to rely a lot more on high-level visual cortex. And then you don't really know what sort of visual features that part of the cortex relies on. Um, they can be very interesting, very fine grain, difficult to, to uh, understand um, uh, features. So then why make assumptions as opposed to just trying to synthesize that kind of vocabulary directly from neuroimaging data? And this is an enterprise in itself. It doesn't necessarily need to be married to, to image reconstruction. Trying to figure out what visual cortex does before, let's say, area V4 is, is key to neuroscientists, to, to people interested in vision. So uh, what we try to do is to, to address both problems, to try to figure out how the high-level visual cortex analyzes um, information, how it decomposes it into features, and then to use the brain's own visual features to reconstruct images. Because the assumption is 
if we're using the brain's own features to reconstruct percepts, probably we're in a better position than if we are when uh, when we pre-assume a certain set of, uh, of vocabulary features. And secondly, reconstruction gives us a way to validate our results concerning what sort of visual features high-level visual cortex is using. But ultimately, all of this is just a part of the procedure um, for reconstruction. So to get to Joe's question, what we do basically is take a pattern of neuroimaging data and we build a mapping function between properties of the uh, neural signal and properties of, uh, of images. And that involves machine learning and computer vision algorithms. To build that sort of function, what we need is essentially lots and lots of data. The more, the better. Uh, and once we can approximate that mapping function with some degree of, of certainty, then we can try to throw new images of the participant. Because if I know what feature what aspects of the neural signal match onto what aspects of, uh, of an actual, let's say, color image, what configuration of pixels uh, matter, um, then I can infer what image uh, people um, look at once uh, I have access to the um, cortical um, activity. So wow, that was an extremely well, thorough and good answer. I, I appreciate that. That was helpful. And I think you tied my misunderstanding of this with... Um, uh, I think the way that Joe is thinking about it too, that helps a lot. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I mean, I, I think uh, maybe might be a good lead in to talking a bit about where we see this going. You're able to get a pretty good sense of what people are seeing and not even just what they're looking at, but in some sense, what they're actually perceiving right. from looking at this neural data. What do you see as the next really exciting topics in this direction and where do you see this going in the next few years for us that open a whole range of possibilities so one of the challenges is to identify those lines of research that are most rewarding and informative uh, different time scales one of the things that we are currently looking into is percepts in patients or individuals with visual disorders with visual distortions Right. Um, so um, an entire category of individuals have difficulties with face identification. Right. Um, they can look at themselves in the mirror and not being able to, to recognize themselves. And those are called congenital prosopagnosics. Some estimates are placed a number of two to three percent of the population. So it'd be very interesting if we managed to visualize those sort of distortions. They report um, the phenomenology be behind that condition is quite interesting. They, um, they report seeing features floating in space. So it'd be very interesting if we managed to reconstruct those percepts to see exactly what they experience when they see other face. Hmm. In contrast, you have people with lots and lots of uh, mood disorders and personality disorders that have absolutely no problem recognizing individuals, but they have difficulty recognizing expressions uh, and they have huge biases in terms of projecting or misinterpreting facial expressions um, and emotions. So for instance, individuals with a borderline personality disorder uh, or bipolar disorder can project an angry expression or, uh, or contempt or disgust on a face that actually emotes nothing at all. So we'd love to be in a, in a position to, to, to be able to visualize that kind of 
of, uh, of bias, of uh, misinterpretation. Because I think to some extent that validates their own experience and who knows, maybe in the long term, it can also be used as a uh, diagnosis tool. Also, so far we've only talked about face recognition, but that's because uh, a lot of my work in the past is focused on that. Uh, more recently, I've been doing things with other uh, visual categories, such as words. We reconstructed words that people look at from EEG data. And we know that there's a you know, considerable proportion of, of kids um, suffering from, uh, from dyslexia. So if we manage to ascertain the, the content of their perception, for instance, the reports that they see the letters flipping positions um, swapped with each other, that would be very interesting to us. So again, that would validate, that would confirm their own um, subjective experience, and it could also potentially be used as a diagnosis tool um, in, uh, um, in the future. So again, I see a lot of potential from a healthcare perspective. That's really wild. So you're basically trying to get at what people are perceiving, and they're not even seeing necessarily the images that would correspond to that perception in another person. That's, uh, that's correct. Um, even a healthy brain constructs um, fictions of the environment, and we're currently able to, to, to see that. Um, so just to take this a step further, we'd love to, to see, to visualize illusions and to visualize uh, biases in perception, to uh, visualize, why not, um, hallucinations, visual hallucinations. And yeah, I think that uh, opens up an, an entire range of possible um, applications. I think the emotion the emotion bit is interesting here too, that you're sort of moving beyond just talking about how a visual image might be reconstructed, but you're getting some inputs from emotion circuits and maybe from all over the place to reconstruct something that's a little closer to a person's actual experience of it. Right. Um, so this is one possibility. Um, currently, we're also trying to perform reconstructions from memory. So as opposed to um, having people look at things, we ask them to remember things, and then we record EEG data associated with that. And I think here's where a lot of the BCI applications come into play. Um, because this has been a challenge for a number of years, trying to decode information from neural activity related to imagery. And most of that research has been done with model imagery. Um, imagine yourself going right or going left. Imagine yourself playing tennis or sitting in a comfortable armchair, right? But more recently, people have taken an interest of decoding information from visual imagery or uh, auditory imagery. Imagine yourself saying the word help or hearing the word help and then trying to, to decode which word you heard. Was it help or was it a map, right? And we are already seeing um, some results pointing to the ability to discriminate, to decode information from visual imagery, the ability to decode let's say, where the participants are looking at or imagining one word versus the other. But the challenge here is not to perform just decoding, but actual reconstruction. What we'd love to do is to have one of these patients or even healthy adults visualize with the mind's eye something and then uh, make it pop up on a, on a screen. So um, that's the challenge, and I have high hopes for it, but there's a lot of things that come into play. Some of them 
are neuroscientific in nature because the signal associated with memory is not necessarily the same one that um, the signal associated with uh, perception. Um, secondly, the quality of the signal is not as good. The, what's called the signal-to-noise ratio associated with imagery with, uh, with memory is not quite um, matching that fine for visual perception. So then we need to find ways to boost the signal and also we need sensitive equipment, as sensitive as possible to avoid and to diminish uh, the impact of um, artifacts. And last but not least, I don't think this is going to work with everybody because if I try to imagine a face um, during my waking hours, I'm not doing such a good job. People are wildly different in their abilities for visual imagery. Um, and uh, I haven't particularly been fortunate enough with those skills. So in my case, perception based on memory and imagery probably would not be so successful. But if you're recording data from a visual artist, then the signal over there is a lot more robust and the visual experience is a, is a lot um, richer. So um, I expect a lot of difference in terms of individual uh, variation. So here's a, So here's a question about maybe when it might be a satisfying thing to get the kinds of results that you're looking for. So say you're hooking this up to yourself and imagining things yourself, if you could get a real-time readout of the decoding of what it is that you're imagining, do you think at some point you could get a better visual representation than you can get across in words that that might be satisfying? In other words, I'm having a thought right now, or I'm say I'm having a particular kind of image, I can't necessarily describe that visual image very well via language, but if I could see it suddenly pop up in front of me on a computer screen, I could say, yes, that is what I was thinking about. Would that be a satisfying endpoint for you or a satisfying direction to go? Yeah, yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be tremendous because our ability to describe visual um, information in words only goes um, that far. And if we start to talk about patients, um, individuals with complete locked-in uh, um, syndrome, then virtually all or most of what we have to go on is neural activity. So we're trying to convert that neural activity into a, a way, into a pipeline of, of communication. So, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities in, uh, in that way. And the applications uh, are not just in healthcare, but as you mentioned earlier, they can facilitate a lot of neuroforensic applications, in particular as related to eyewitness testimony. And attempts in that direction have already made in the past, um, removing, for instance, um, human sketch artists with automatic systems. Uh, so, for instance, EPIC, which is uh, widely used in the, in the UK, attempts to do that. You know, just basically modifying different aspects of a, of a face so that um, it matches more or less your your memory of uh, of let's say uh, a suspect or an uh, assailant. Um, so what we'd love to do is to facilitate that process even more. So you're thinking, you're remembering in as much visual detail somebody's face, and then you can have that pop up on um, on a screen. So that's that's very interesting to us. How realistic do you think a, a scenario like that might be? I think it's a matter of time. I don't think it's a matter of if. And uh, the time, again, depends on a number of factors. Um, some of them have to do with the type of equipment that's being used. So I think there's a chase nowadays for identifying the best type of electrode, right? 
um, and nobody has found the golden standard of that to compare, uh, for instance, with what uh, we can achieve using gel-based electrodes. So there's a lot about uh, manufacturing and about hardware. The other part is about the algorithms that we're using. And because a lot of this research is so new, so young, we still have no, no clue as to how far it can get. Third, it depends on the people that we're using the technology, on the, on the users. Because to be able to do that, you need to be able to focus. You need to keep in your mind's eye a particular percept. And that can take a bit of, of um, training. So there are a lot of factors that come into play. From our perspective, one of the key challenges is um, not only boosting the algorithms, their ability to produce meaningful and robust data, but also shortening data collection. Because right now, we put the participant in the scanner for five hours, or we collect EEG data for three or four hours. That's just not going to cut it for practical applications. Uh, we need to shorten those um, significantly. We, we want to be able to, to place the, the headset on top of somebody's head and within 10 minutes we, uh, we intend to have the uh, calibration more or less working. And um, to do that, I think one path that people have explored in the past using uh, BCIs is transfer learning, training algorithms on the data of, of a group of individuals and then testing it using on a, on a new person. So these are just some of the things that uh, we're trying to keep in mind and see how far we can, uh, we can progress by um, emphasizing one or the other. Maybe one last question on progress on this and, we can move, and then we can move on to some more a few maybe a few bigger picture issues or speculations so on a our last episode we talked a little bit about elon musk's Neuralink. he's looking at uh, companies that are trying to engineer something that could potentially be a great tool for researchers to use to get a better kind of resolution so you had mentioned that one of the aspects that's going to create an eventual use for this is getting better electrodes and getting better hardware. So do you think this is the best approach to be taking right now? Well, there's a, there's a challenge and there's a, there's a race to identify not only the best EG equipment, but to identify the best portable um, neurotechnology over there. Is it EEG? Is it apneas? Is it something else? So people are just trying to identify whatever is whatever can provide good signal quality uh, which is also fairly comfortable, um, right? And that's 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 an important distinction to to make because a lot of the the equipment with good signal to noise ratio is also incredibly uncomfortable to wear. And in contrast, some of the things with a slick design and relatively uh, affordable, let's say, a lot of the commercial available EEG does not necessarily deliver the high signal quality that you need for some of these um, applications. And I think in the far future Elon Musk version of this, the solution is some kind of injectable device that that goes into your bloodstream and forms some kind of mesh over your brain. And, you know, maybe that's realistic and maybe it's not. But there is that search for something that's comfortable and, and something that's not noticeable in everyday life and yet has a good resolution across a large amount of the brain. It's hard to comment on the feasibility of something like that, but maybe well, in the long term. 
I think the sooner people start working on that, the better, because it's going to take uh, it's going to take quite a bit of time to figure out the details for that. But um, I'm focusing on a somewhat more reasonable, more restrictive time frame. I like to be able to help developing, if possible, and enjoy this technology um, during my lifetime. <laughs> well, I think Elon Musk said he'll develop this stuff within two years, and we should have <laughs> yeah, sure. that directly sure. reads our mind, so it shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, so I, I place a great deal of trust in, um, in algorithms, in artificial intelligence, and also in the motivation of many manufacturers to, to, to come up with, uh, with good solutions. But at the same time, I'm trying to be realistic and um, if what you're trying to do is not just what people call mind reading, but also mind writing, if what you intend to do is imprint patterns of activation, then probably you need to go in. You might need to open up the skull or inject things out. But for the time being, I think that it's important to focus on reading because once we understand exactly what sort of um, neural patterns correspond to what aspects of the environment you're looking at or how you're processing information or how you experience certain things, then we're in a great position to, to do writing in the future as well. And if we try to accelerate the timetable for um, developing uh, mind-reading neurotechnologies, then uh, it's so much easier to use non-invasive technologies with EEG. We can, we can collect such data uh, within the scope of days in dozens of individuals. If you're trying to do this uh, with uh, micro uh, electrode arrays and with implants, then it's, it's difficult to secure the patients, to, to implement the safety protocols, the data collection. So it's just so much slower to, to make progress on that front. And um, the progress is very much uh, appreciated, but it's much easier to focus on things that um, are basically at our fingertips, such as um, um, scalp EEG. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it, as you start talking about the relationship between mind reading and mind writing, it makes me think a little bit about philosophical questions about if I'm reading out these percepts from your brain, how do we write those to my brain in such a way that the message is conveyed in a way that produces the result that we desire? It gets to an interesting philosophical question about what is that relationship between the activity in your brain, the meaning of that, and then the activity in my brain and what I perceive as the meaning of that. I think, Ralph, this gets a little bit to the, the question you were asking in the last episode about is it ever possible to really have this instantaneous communication between brains? Yeah, I guess one interesting question about this is uh, a term that comes from cognitive science and artificial intelligence, the idea of multiple realizability. So the idea that, say, a particular thought or you know, a kind of intelligence can be realized in an almost infinite number of ways so that you could build brains out of biological material, you could build them out of silicon, you could build them out of whatever you like, but as long as there are the right functional relations, you can create a kind of intelligence. And, you know, if you think about, say, the perception of a an individual face, so the way that I perceive a particular face might be different than the way that you perceive a particular face. And we can realize these things in completely different um, neural setups. 
And, or any, I guess, any kind of thought that you have. When, it, when you think about it as uh, closer to an actual sensory representation, we might implement them in similar sorts of ways. So early visual information might be represented on early visual cortex in similar kinds of ways. But then as it gets processed further, it might be implemented in completely different ways. So how is it that you start understanding how to translate? How is it that you understand what a thought may represent or what a, a set of neural neural activations may represent? And then how do you figure out how to transform that into something that another brain in which it might be instantiated in a completely different way? How is it that you map one onto the other? And that to me is kind of an interesting question. Um, how you can, and this is a, this is a, starts out as a philosophical question. It's the problem of other minds. How do you understand the subjective experiences and of another person and maybe turns it into an actual kind of computational transformation? How do you transform the neural the particular pattern of neural firing from one individual into something that's comprehensible and equivalent into another individual does this strike you as a problem that's worth addressing or something that in the longer term might be a goal of this kind of research um absolutely i think there's um that's a very interesting question and it's actually not as much a challenge uh, a question as it is a challenge and you have to identify the different levels of that challenge. And one of them is indeed in terms of um, algorithmic mapping. So if you think about what we've been discussing so far vis-a-vis, um, -vis, let's say, um, image reconstruction, you're building mapping functions between the environment and the brain. What we are talking about now is essentially building mapping functions between multiple brains but not at the level of anatomy, or not just anatomy, but rather mm -hmm. mapping functions between functional patterns um, across the brains of different individuals. Yeah, and, and one of the key problems with something like this might be that it, that it, I mean, the difficulty might be in figuring out what the referent is for each of these neural signals. In other words, the the concept that these neural signals are representing might be the difficult thing to understand rather than the neural signals themselves. Right. I mean, at some point, you know, if we're talking about images in the world, then you can uh, have something that feels like an objective standard. You can, it feels like an objective standard to us because we can look at the picture that's reconstructed and we can say, yes, in fact, that looks like the thing that I saw. But if it's something that's more of an emotional or other quality type of an experience. It's like a labeling problem. It's like, how do we decide what that, yeah. know, if that was correctly represented? Yeah, so I think this is uh, what Joe is suggesting. It's a, it's a great first step because if you have a good mapping function um, that um, references objective stimuli, then you can build this entire process from the ground up because ultimately representations of abstract um, concepts rely essentially on, um, on your visual experience. So once you build those sort of functions for early visual cortex and high-level visual cortex, then um, you can move uh, one step at a time further, um, further up within the um, processing um, hierarchy. Are you going to be able to, to completely be able to map equivalent emotions uh, across the brains of different individuals? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. 
uh, I can surmise that you could potentially build approximations. But uh, yeah, that's something that I care about. And um, this is exactly one of the newer projects that I've been working on for the last couple of years. Just trying to build mapping functions across the brains of different individuals so we know exactly how what you perceive matches against what I perceive. Um, and I think that paves the way to, to mind uh, writing in the future. But this is just one layer. Um, of that discussion of that challenge. The other one is how to make things possible because there's a there's a simplistic assumption that if I understand what pattern in your brain corresponds to a particular image of an individual, let's say, I can just activate the right neural population yeah. and that will happen. And it's not as simple because the brain works as a whole. So if I only target a small mm -hmm. part of the cortex by doing that, um, things might go horribly, horribly wrong. And for the last several years, many labs have tried to just flood with neural activation using what they thought is relatively fine uh, microelectrodes, uh, arrays, um, areas of high-level visual cortex. And currently, as far as I know, uh, all they managed to achieve is to destroy, to eradicate visual percepts. Um, <laughs> you look at a face um, and you flood an area with activation and that just melts the face into... Um, nose and and eyes and hair just uh horrible nightmarish images so sort of in the way that transcranial magnetic stimulation mostly works as a temporary lesion or stops activity in a particular brain area rather than stimulating brain activity in that region yes that's correct so the understanding was that this is no longer tms now we're doing this is a much finer grain level but even that is not enough and i suspect that um no matter how good those micro uh, electrode arrays get unless you have a good understanding of uh, understanding of how the brain delivers those types of experiences in a more holistic manner you're not going to be able to write information to the brain efficiently and that's a huge huge challenge for the purpose of mind reading we can uh, we can bypass that problem because we can just target a specific um, area of the signal that's diagnostic and make inferences based on it but if you're trying to influence visual perception or subjective experience of any kind, then just by targeting a single uh, single region might not just cut it um, in the long term. This is so interesting. So one of the things that I wonder is a sort of a thought experiment here. So imagine that you had perfect brain recorder that could get activation of every single neuron or whatever level of specificity you want at every single possible time frame uh, so that you could see, you could, in theory, understand every single thing that's going on in a brain. What would you do with that information? What would be the limitations that you'd still have? I mean, you'd have, you'd certainly have a, it's a lot of number crunching to figure out anything that's going on, but what would you understand if you had a, a an absolutely perfect resolution? Well, um, I would say that the first reaction would be being stymied because um, there's so much you can do with that. But at the same time, there's so much information over there. So even when we collect um, fMRI data or EEG data, a lot of that information just gets thrown away, um, literally, or um, is just filtered out, um, eliminated from data processing. So in the face of so much information, one of the key problems is identify your goal 
and identify the information that is relevant for that specific goal. What is the level of analysis, right? Are you looking at single neurons firing? Are you looking at um, population codes? Are you looking at signal as courses, what EEG is giving you? So you need to identify the right level of analysis because otherwise you can end up chasing your, uh, your tail in a very complicated maze. I think a lot of uh, when when a lot of people think of brain scanning, they may think of you know limitations because there isn't enough spatial resolution or there isn't enough temporal resolution. I guess the implication of that is that if you had perfect spatial and temporal re resolution, that you would really fully understand everything that's going on in the brain. But you're suggesting that even that is you're you're just getting information overload, and you have to you still have to filter out a lot of that, and you you wouldn't have a, a full understanding. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, neuroscientists, including myself, are, are used to, to complain a lot about the state of hardware, right? We, we love to do that. Yeah, oh, right. it's not good enough for our goal. <laughs> Guys, you engineers need to come up with things that are much better and much more easy to use and sophisticated and so on and so forth. But the reality is that until recently, we used um, such a small percentage of the data that that hardware was providing for us, whether being fMRI or EEG. Uh, we just didn't have the tools, the algorithmic tools to, to, to sift through the data, identify what's useful, and do something meaningful uh, with that entire with the entirety of the uh, of the uh, information delivered by those um, technologies. So yes, there's a great deal of progress to be done in terms of boosting spatial resolution, temporal resolution, maximizing um, signal to noise ratio, the quality of the signal, but there's an equal challenge to be effective at processing the information that's already available to us using any single one of those technologies. Um, and to do that, uh, we need a much better understanding of the data, and we need to be able to use effectively the right, the suitable um, techniques for signal processing and uh, beyond that for uh, analysis, the right sort of algorithms. And that is an interesting challenge. Um, it's, it's one that defines my, uh, uh, my objectives when it comes to research. That's really cool. That's, uh, the research you're doing is, is really fantastic. And it's getting me excited about the uh, the future of this technology and the present of this technology as well, actually. But while we're talking about it, it seems like it might be a good time to transition into my favorite part of the show. Right. <laughs> what hellish dystopias are you helping to create? So, so we want to make you feel guilty about the research that you're doing, Adrian. So uh, how are you contributing to the horrible futures that this could eventually lead to? Um. Well, I think what people key on when I describe this technology uh, in terms of horrible dystopias is <laughs> loss of privacy. I've been talking about the possibility of, of visualizing the contents of your personal experience and then the possibility of sharing that information using tools for a variety of social platforms. Um, so then what happens, right? Is, do we have a complete loss of, of privacy? Uh, are we going to be able to protect the information that's in um, our own heads? And um, several people have, have waited on this. And my sense and my expectations that we will do a lot more good than, um, than bad. 
primarily because none of this information can be collected without your consent. So assume that there's a gadget on the market that can reconstruct the contents of your subjective experience. First of all, you have to place it on your head before you can collect any information. You need to be able to focus, um, to be able to, to visualize things with the mind's eye. So if, if you don't cooperate, uh, it's not going to work. Uh, you need to be willing to share that information with others, and that's also um, up to you. So there will be many, uh, many levels of control that uh, are still in place to protect your um, privacy. Um, and a lot of agencies are actually working on that, um, trying to, to make sure that all this new and crazy tech ensures um, secures privacy um, laws. Um, there are even more extreme approaches to it um, that have gone as far as suggesting that human rights need to be amended to protect the right to, to neural and mental privacy. And um, again, um, there's a bit of a debate on that, whether we need to inflate human rights to accommodate something uh, like neural privacy. But I think it's uh, it's worth a uh, um, discussion now and um, in the in the not so distant future as well. So something like that would entail laws that would prohibit extracting information without the explicit consent of a person. Right. Yeah. And it's a question mostly of how and at what level you enforce those privacy laws, because some people um, suggested that uh, at this stage, they should be product specific. So somebody will evaluate the risks of a specific product on the market and then um, you can verify exactly uh, and you can enforce privacy um, applications in that manner, while others are suggesting that this needs to be secured within the scope of a much more general legal uh, framework, such as that as of human rights. Um, in terms of develop, developing the tech, I think uh, we can also aid a lot, right? So you can make sure that you can set up, let's say, privacy filters. So the tech only um, only extracts information that you're willing to share. Um, so there's many, many different ways in which you can approach that. And it's just a question of finding what's optimal for most of us or for all of us, hopefully, without impairing too much or without without slowing down the development of that technology. One of the things that you were mentioning earlier, Adrian, was the use of this type of technique for, say, for example, eyewitness testimony. And what that immediately suggests to me in the context of this privacy debate is, uh, imagine a situation where you've got someone who's being interrogated as a terrorist, for example, and you're trying to identify other members of this terrorist cell. it seems pretty directly applicable to where you could show pictures of the different individuals in the lineup, for example, that you are trying to say might be members and, and do a, a task where you say, yeah, this person does believe this is a, a member of the cell, or even uh, actually construct an image of what the person looks like without showing any picture of any anybody else who's even a suspect. So in other words, you could read the person's mind to maybe ferret out a crime that hasn't even been committed yet. That, that just seems like one potential way that, you know, for all our best intentions, uh, it would be tempting to use this to, to violate individuals' mental privacy. You actually, you're, you're thinking of the same exact question that I was, Joe. And uh, one response to take it just one 
ludicrous step further is if you are that terrorist, you might even anticipate this kind of thing and you might get into programming the person that you're sending to do it so that they would respond to an incorrect phase or that they would mm-hmm. they would uh, send false signals so that it couldn't be in- interpreted in that way. Yeah, well, I, I think that's no technology is fail safe. So um, that's, no, yeah, we're, we're thinking about crazy um, future technologies, too. So and not realistic. I think you're you're well grounded in this. Um, yeah, so it's a bit it's, it's a bit of an extreme example, but uh, I think several groups have tried in the past to um, extract information um, in experiments that people were not necessarily so willing to disclose, and they they claim that they managed to to get such information, such as let's say somebody's credit card information, right, mm-hmm. or uh, date of birth. But it's not as easy as someone might sound. You need people to cooperate to, to, to make this happen. And you don't need reconstruction for any of those scenarios. What people have been doing in the past is just, um, as Joe mentioned earlier, as a potential scenario. And that's a very realistic scenario. Just present folks with a, with a number of faces and record EEG signals so they can identify exactly which faces you know are familiar to you versus not familiar. And there are certain components of the EEG signal that can be associated um, with familiarity. But um, that doesn't work as well as you might expect. And secondly, again, um, just like you can fool a a lie detector test. um, Mm, Yeah, it seems like the same basic kind of setup as a skin conductance lie detector test, just a a little more sophisticated. Right, just like you can fool a light detector test, you can fool any of these um, technologies. Uh, because if you don't pay attention, if you don't do your job properly, um, then you can corrupt and confuse the signal to such an extent that no matter how smart the algorithm is, um, you're making the, the, the job of whoever's in charge of this little test or experiment uh, very, very difficult, very complicated. Yeah, I'm not sure whether this is um, puts all those concerns to rest, but it shows that you know, there's always going to be some sort of, of race, some sort of chase, uh, some sort of competition between people who try to advance technology and people that want to, to beat technology, right, at its own game. And I, I think that's completely, uh, that's completely fair, and it's not something that um, somebody will win eventually. You might gain a momentary advantage once you bring to the market a new technology, but then people find out exactly what its weakness is, and then uh, uh, they learn how to deal with it and how to exploit it. Yeah, so on the positive side, what other, what other sorts of potential applications might you see for these kinds of systems? I guess we've mentioned a couple, but are there any other ones that might be exciting to you or ones that you thought about? Um, yeah, so I see, I think there's a lot of potential applications in, uh, in healthcare, in designing a neural based of communication for people who can't communicate um, um, verbally or um, using the hands, using um, a sign language. Um, I also think that um, there's a broad range of potential commercial applications, right? How do you see yourself? How do you see um, your friends, folks in your social circle, right? Um, A lot of teenagers suffer from body image problems, right? Um, So I think it can be used 
to um, inform ourselves about how we uh, how we visualize, how we process the visual world around that. So, um, so it can become also a great um, social tool. It can be integrated with um, social media, as I mentioned earlier, or as a, or just therapeutic uses in general. Or therapeutic uses, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's also potential there for um, neuromarketing, right? You look at a product, or what aspects of it do you pay attention to, what don't you, how do you perceive or misperceive different aspects of that? So yeah, I think that the, the possibilities are wide open. It's just a matter of accelerating the timetable for this technology and just making sure that we identify the most useful applications at, uh, at this stage. Adrian, I think... Uh... We've really uh, gotten a lot out of this conversation. Are there any last points that we want to hit, Rolf, do you think, before we let Adrian get, get on with the rest of his day? Well, uh, maybe we could just set it up as, a, as an opportunity for Adrian. Are there any, any other additional points that might be worth making or ones that you'd like to make? Or do you think you've, you've said, I mean, you've gone over an awful lot. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, indeed, I think we we covered a lot of uh, topics um, today. I, I would just end up noticing that there's there's a lot of promise for this technology. Um, there's a lot of excitement, possibly over excitement, but there's a lot of challenges, technical, theoretical, and all of them need to be addressed one at a one at a time. So. I am one of the individuals that uh, put a lot of time and resources into making things happen, but ultimately there's a lot of things that are not completely under our control. So I hope that within the, the next decade, this um, technology will be flourishing and will be available to, to most of us. But that's that's just a guess and it's a, and it, and it's a hope um, rather than a prediction at this stage. Great. Well, I really appreciate the the level of thought that you put into this and the conversation that you've had with us, too. So this is fantastic. Um, thanks again for your time, Adrian. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, Joe. It's uh, Yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you guys.